0: your face. The song goes on, is here. Yeah. We're back at it. And this time, we're joined by a film music evangelist, writer for NPR, LA Times, Washington Post, The Ringer, everything. Oh my God, it's Tim Grieving. What's up, Tim?
1: Hello. So happy to be here. And thank you for my proper introduction as a film music evangelist, which is what I like to call myself.
0: Tim, we are just so excited to have you on the pod. We were just chatting before we started recording, and you were sort of one of our kind of like a hobby moments when we launched the song will go on and having someone that we've sort of admire who's really big in the space of film music me like hey like i'd be down to a pot and we were like whoa sure can't believe it took this long but we finally have you
1: here happy to be here i'm I'm glad we didn't hop on it too quickly because my joke to you on twitter was about that beethoven 2 song which (laughs) it had just come on like shuffle and i i was laughing at how stupid it was it's you know a dolly parton duet about a dog i would have enjoyed talking about that but maybe Maybe not as had much passion for it, just laughs, kicks and giggles.
0: <laughs> no, but that, that was the thing. That was like, he gets it. He gets it what this puck is about. It's totally. about Beethoven 2 and why Dolly Parton made a song. You know, like that's uh, some of the weird corners we cover here. Like I keep saying the soundtrack paycheck makes musicians do a lot of weird stuff and we are going to shine a light on all of it. Having said that, Tim, like I said, we follow your work for a while and when I reached out to you to have you in the pod, I was like, what's Tim going to pick? I have, just have no clue. You came back with two songs. One made complete sense, given your appreciation of film scores, but the other was The Never-Ending Story. And it was a complete surprise. So I want to ask you, why did you pick this song, The Never-Ending Story? I love it. First of all, undisputable
1: banger. And I love this movie so much. Mm -hmm. I think this might be my favorite children's movie ever made. Came out in 1984, which is the year I was born. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see it in the theater, but I grew up with it. Had the soundtrack. have Rewatched it and re listened to it millions of times in the last 40 years. And it's funny. It is funny too. It's not a straight up masterpiece in the sort of classical sense, but it is just truly great and infectious. And uh, I, I could probably talk about it for a long time. So those are my reasons.
2: Great news for us.
0: <laughs> All right. Tim is going to join us back on the song discussion. But Sophie, we couldn't talk about the song without. No, you know what I'm going to say. I do. It's creator of the movie. Alive. It's alive. It's alive. And no way, shape, and form can we talk about the movie without... Your masterful setup, Sophie.
2: All right, well, let's just jump in then. The Never Ending Story is a 1984 German American fantasy film written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson and is the first in the Never Ending Story film series.
0: Wait, series? You mean one, two?
2: Trilogy. Oh, there's a third. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is based on the 1979 German novel of the same name by fantasy and children's fiction author Michael Ende. Which I'm just gonna start off and say, there are a lot of German names that I'm about to read. <laughs> I apologize. We need like an
0: AI tool for us to just pronounce names for us on the. On I the,
2: think so, yeah. Like learn
0: your voice, learn our voices, and just like pronounce so the I names. So I can just plug things. it in. Yes. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, the film stars Noah Hathaway, Barrett Oliver, Tammy Stronach, and Alan Oppenheimer as the voice of Falcor and Gomork, among others. Here's a quick plot summary. When 10-year-old Bastion hides in a bookstore to avoid some bullies, he finds a book called The Neverending Story. Bastion reads the tale of a land called Fantasia, which is slowly being devoured by the Nothing. Fantasia's ruler, the childlike Empress, is sick, and the young warrior Atreyu sets out on a journey to find a cure and defeat the Nothing. As Bastion continues to read, he suspects he may be becoming a character in the story. Okay, here comes another name. Producer Bernd Eichinger, (laughs) how'd I do? I'm not sure. (laughs) Who went on to become a founding member of Summit Entertainment, by the way, saw his children reading the novel and they urged him to make a movie adaptation. So he acquired the rights. I wonder, we should
0: do a deep dive of movies that have made by executive kids. And they just like, sure, whatever, I'm rich. Let's Uh do that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Initially, Helmut Dietl signed on to direct he usually did short films and comedies in Germany, but he realized the film was going to be too big of an undertaking for him once the characters and the sets started being built. Uh, so they called in Wolfgang Peterson, who agreed to direct. Author Michael Ende was initially excited to adapt his work and he worked with Peterson on the script. The collaboration didn't work out though. Uh, Peterson rewrote the script with Hermann Weigel. Ende was enraged. He hated the script. Peterson chalked it up to a misunderstanding of the adaptation process. Here's a quote from Peterson. He said, the bottom line is he could not really understand the process of making a two hour movie from his big and very, very rich book. He didn't understand it and he didn't want to understand it. So Schultz fired a little bit at the end there. And it makes sense because Enda actually took him to court. He was trying to stop the production. But he was unsuccessful in his efforts, as we know, because we're here talking about the movie that they made. The movie had a three-month shooting schedule, which expanded to a year because of Peterson's commitment to his vision for the film. Dang, I know, I know. And the movie cost approximately $27 $27 million in US dollars, and at the time, that made it the most expensive German film. The film grossed $20 million in Germany, bringing in 5 million viewers, a feat rarely achieved by German productions at the time. The US wasn't quite as favorable. The reviews were mixed. Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars, praising the visual effects and the world of Fantasia.
0: I mean, that's good for Ebert.
2: That is, but, um...
0: He's not going to give it 4 out of 4. Well... <laughs>
2: Gene Siskel, however, said that the visual effects were terrible. <laughs> Falcor looked like a stuffed dragon you would win at a carnival and he referred to the character of Atreyu as a dullard.
1: Everything looks sort of cheap in this film to me. The ivory tower, they say, and I expect to be dazzled. Instead, I wish I had seen the Magic Kingdom in Disneyland. That doesn't look as good. And that big dog-like dragon looks like some kind of cheap plush toy you might win in a country carnival ring toss game and then toss in the basket
0: when you leave. Damn.
2: I know. Uh, needless to say, Enda agreed more with Siskel on that one. <laughs> it ended up gro- grossing $20 million in the U.S., which is a pretty modest number for the American market. Uh, just to wrap up, The NeverEnding Story was followed up by two lackluster sequels with en- entirely different casts, uh-uh. neither of which Enda saw, by the way. But they did not stop the original film from achieving cult status. So... Let's get into our discussion. Two lackluster sequels? Two lackluster sequels. Mm -hmm. One lackluster sequel. Okay, I see where you're going. You are saying one of them is not lackluster? Yes. Oh, God, these are fighting words. Okay. So
0: something tells me, based on the plot of this movie, the character, this was a... Jewel amongst Sophie's, like, childhood movies.
2: I can see how you would think that because I was a fan of all of those 80s fantasy movies that sort of leaned in a darker... Return of the Oz, you absolutely <laughs> love Oz. that. Yeah, I love but it. But also,
0: you're such a reader. Like, I can imagine you, like, this is how I cut school. I'll just stay in the... <laughs> I'll just stay in school and read books. <laughs> this is my version of cutting class.
2: You know what? That That is fair. But I will say, even though... I did have an appreciation for this movie. As a kid watching it, I was just like, "Mm, there aren't enough girls in this movie. (laughs) Like the the childlike Empress is really the only girl character and she just sort of sits in a room the whole time. Even though I liked what was going on here, loved Falcor, love all of the puppets and the practical effects and everything. You would catch me popping in the VHS for Labyrinth or Return to Oz or something like that. More than this one. But I do really appreciate the movie and having watched it again in preparation for this, there were a lot of great things in it that maybe I didn't appreciate as a kid. Yeah.
0: How was your experience as a grown up? As a grown up. As an adult.
2: (laughs) Man, I I mean, it instantly brought me back to my childhood with that scene with the horse. Oh, man. I think that that scene is. Responsible for giving everybody anxiety.
0: This is the scariest movie of all time. <laughs> this is the scariest movie of all time. I rather, if I have a child and they're like six or seven, I rather watch Goodfellas with them <laughs> than show them this movie. Like this is more traumatizing. This, honestly, to me, I'm not, I'm not joking. This was the scariest film I saw as a kid. Either this. Okay, or so just. you you
2: did see it as a kid. I
0: I saw it as a okay. kid. It traumatized me. But again, in that sort of like, I'm scared, but also captivated. I need to keep watching. Right. If it would come on on HBO, I would be like, oh, oh where I'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch this. But mm. oh, the, the wolf <laughs> scene is coming.
2: Oh, I was not scared of that wolf. I think it was because I loved dogs. I so was much. scared of
0: all of it. All of it, mm-hmm. Sophie. All of it. That's fair. That's even, fair. Even Falcor, who is like the coolest has like an element of like uh i don't know
2: maybe it's those eyes they're just so big and they know so much it was like he's
0: really cool but i wouldn't ride him as a kid i would like no
2: oh no my my dream was to, to was to ride any flying animal as a child so i'd be like sign me the fuck up get me on that thing
0: Let's do a therapy session here, because this is okay. what it's going to be. Okay. The horse.
2: Yeah, the horse.
0: Yes, that is top five most traumatizing, intense scene I saw as a kid.
2: Artex! Fight against
3: the sadness, Artex! Artex, please. You're letting the sadness of the swamps get to you.
2: That is up there with, like, Old Yeller for me. <laughs>
0: You, nah, you went back. I did. No, I mean, <laughs>
2: like, I'm. Yeah, it's up there. So I had it in my memory, and I thought that that scene came closer to the the end. You know, like Atreyu's lowest point. We would have this horse death, but no, it's like really soon into the runtime of the movie. I was not prepared.
0: It's something about the horse that makes it ten times more traumatizing. I'm not joking. If it was like a human, and they were like, ah, oh, you we were like, oh man, yeah. But like the horse, just like quietly, and those like big black yeah. eyes and that the intensity. Horse. Oh my god, a kid like it's engraved in my memory. That horse's
2: acting job was fantastic, <laughs> yeah. actually. Like he really sold <laughs> Aung it.
0: unsung hero, like <laughs>
2: literally, literally.
0: <laughs> just really traumatizing. But the wolf for me. So okay. in my house, as a kid, my childhood home. We had a basement, and in that basement, there was, like, you know how sometimes stairs have, like, extra storage room underneath them?
2: Like where Harry Potter slept, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: So we had one of those, but it didn't have a door. It was just, like, open, and it was just this, like, empty black hole.
2: Oh, and you were like, that's where Gamork lives? Yes. Yeah? Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. And every time my mom told me, take out the trash, the can was, like, next to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how (laughs) many years I had to go there thinking that wolf was gonna pop out of that like (laughs) cave hole like and i would like drop the trash can start running back home (laughs) and be like i made it
2: that's how you know like when a movie sticks with you like that and comes into your real life like that that, that's a real one you years yeah
0: years And I wonder what the point of view from my mom was. Like, if she was in the kitchen. Hey, can you take the trash out? I leave for two minutes and then just come back sprinting.
2: <laughs> she was probably and just like, whatever. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. What's wrong
0: with this kid? Mom, that's what was going on. I was running from that wolf. Again, I had so much trauma that I have kind of forgotten this, but I remember watching it now in prepping for the episode, crossing those statues.
2: Oh, with the titties? <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the,
2: st- the td
0: statues, yeah 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 with the eye beams i was like <laughs> that was also so intense
2: yeah well and like psychologically there's a lot of stuff going on like he has to believe in himself to pass through those statues and i don't know just what a, what a psychological test that is
0: yeah this is a theme that has come back up on the podcast when we cover this but i really do have an appreciation and a soft spot i don't think it's nostalgia Maybe it is, but it's respect—the respect I felt like this movie had for me as a kid.
3: Mm, because
0: mm-hmm. now seeing it, the nothing, the depression, the like, the metaphors there for the horse, sort of like I just don't want to keep going. And then you just keep calling get him same.
2: the horse. His name is Artax. I just wanted to. Let Sorry, I know. I'm not. We not need as to put respect on his name. I'm not as
0: good with the names okay. as you. I really that AI feature. It was like mainly for me. Yeah. I, I cannot remember. <laughs> <laughs> But Artax, the metaphor there and like just this movie really feels about depression. And I lost a parent when I was young. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the character does in the film. I can't say that when I was a kid, I watch the film with that in mind. But as an adult, I do. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think that somehow this film was kind of a comfort blanket. Even with all the trauma I I've mentioned, even with all of that, it did feel like maybe those were the things why I kept going back to it. Despite yeah. of all the things that made me scared, it was an experience I enjoyed and connected and it had, it moved me emotionally in a positive way. Despite, I, I just said like top five <laughs> traumas, three of them are in this film as a kid. Yeah. And I still like wanted to keep going back to it. Still, at the end, I finished the movie and I felt positive. And I think it had to be there on the subtext somehow that I was connecting to like really like the deep themes that this movie brings as a kid. And I I, I, I love it. We should have more of these, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think Bastion and Atreyu are successful in the end, you know? So I think that it is empowering, even if you're not thinking about it explicitly, but feeling it that both of these kids who go through these traumas are coming out the other side. And, you know, someone like you as a kid watching can go through similar things, or these would be a metaphor for for whatever hardships you, you go through, and they come out the other side. So they're they're yes, they're scary, but also real life is scary too. So I think that that could absolutely be why it's a comfort. You had touched a bit on... The nothing being the main evil in this movie. And I wanted to quickly talk about the author, Michael Enda, and how the nothing appears in the book, because mm-hmm. there's actually a lot that could be expanded upon. And just, I, I actually went down a huge rabbit hole looking into Michael Enda and his father, actually, who was a surrealist painter named Edgar Enda. And that makes sense. They just have it, it makes perfect sense, <laughs> and they just have a really interesting creative history. And of course, being the time that it was in Germany while he was growing up, it just was really fascinating. So, but but before I get to the nothing, I'll just do a little bit of a history on them, super quick. So, Michael Ende's father was, like I said, a surrealist painter, and in the 1930s, his paintings were actually getting quite of a bit of attention, but they were condemned by the Nazi government. A, calling it degenerate artwork. So as of 1936, he was not allowed to display any of his artwork. A lot of his work was confiscated. And the Enda family was having these artistic and philosophical discussions, and they all had to be kept in secret. So Edgar was called to serve for the Nazis in 1940, and he called this period the worst time of his life. And while his father was away fighting. Uh, Michael was inspired to begin writing. This was his first time actually putting pen to paper after witnessing the Hamburg bombing. And that's when he wrote his first poem. So a lot of Michael's creativity is a response to the, the trauma of war.
0: I mean, makes perfect sense. Absolutely. That's why That's why they're so existential, so big picture, so deep.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And he was actually himself called to serve for the Nazis in 1945. He was still a teenager at the time, I believe, and um, he actually tore up his call-up papers and he joined a Bavarian resistance group in Munich. So he was firm on where he stood on the the politics of the of the time. So in the book, The Neverending Story, the nothing is very representative of not just the war but also of the the politics at the time. So. In the book, the creatures throw themselves into the nothing in in a frenzy. As it says in the film, the creatures go into the nothing. They become lies in the human world, which I think is super, Dang. super interesting because Enda knows firsthand how powerful lies can be, having survived the, the takeover of an authoritarian regime. So he knows what it's like to have your world destroyed Not just by by bombs, but also by lies.
0: And that would have been really good visually also from a movie. Like characters you like or think look nice as a kid and then they're just throwing themselves at the nothing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is definitely a metaphor for people backing the, the Nazi regime. And as the book continues, the movie is actually only the first half of Enda's book, which is Partly why I think it was so hard to adapt and why he had a hard time understanding why we were cutting the the book short. But so uh, as the book goes on, Bastion is basically he's he has this self-loathing and lack of confidence, which is touched on in in the film. But uh, when they ask him to call out the Empress's name at the end, he just can't believe that him of all people could could save Fantasia so in the second half, he starts making these wishes, and with every wish that he makes, he loses part of his memory. So like he wishes to become more attractive and you know more confident. So so this movie is really only the first half of the book. Actually, in 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 the movie's sequel, it's inspired by the second half of the book. I wouldn't say it they're really going for a retelling, but in in the first half, Bastion is overweight and he's bow-legged and he wishes to make himself tall and athletic and this self-loathing of and and his lack of confidence is shown in the film because he just can't believe that the childlike empress would ask him Mm -hmm. to give her a name ask him to do it he just can't believe that he would have the power to do that so as he makes these wishes in the second half he starts to lose his memory, so he wishes to change all these things about himself, and then he starts to forget. That's such
0: good writing.
2: It and is. Think yeah. about it, just
0: from from like a concept. The more you wish for stuff you like, you lose
2: part of yourself. Memory, part of yeah. yourself. Like, goddamn. Yeah, and and further to go on with this. Nazi Germany theme that's going on. Bastion turns on his friends. Atreyu tries to stop him and, you know, say, hey, you know, this isn't you. Bastion gets rid of him. He surrounds himself with yes men and he nearly crowns himself the ruler of Fantasia. And this is a direct reference to authoritarianism. And here is a quote from Michael Enda about the book, which I found really interesting. This is the story of a boy who loses his inner world, his mythical world, In this one night of crisis, a life crisis, it dissolves into nothingness. And he has to jump into the nothingness because that is what we Europeans have to do, too. We have succeeded in dissolving all values, and now we have to jump into it. And only by having the courage to jump into this nothingness can we reawaken our own innermost creative forces and build a new fantasia, i.e. a new world of values. So again, going back to the nothingness... Not only is it the authoritarianism, but it's also what is left after the war when Europe and Germany specifically in this case has to rebuild. Like they have to make a new Fantasia.
0: And hearing all of this makes me really want to see this, watch the sequel. Okay. Because I, re- I watched the sequel a lot as a kid, I remember. But i really haven't seen it since and i remember i liked it i i thought the the plot was good the performances were good the villain was good the woman she also like has i don't know just a phrase that was like intense and i was like oh you know it definitely scared me too <laughs> but most of the stuff that you're saying about that i can see it i can see it in the sequel and again my memory is a little bit vague but there is the wishes component of it there is the part about losing memory. He does fight Mm Atreyu. Also, the villain, the woman, she has like soldier-like robots. Ah, okay. So, I don't know. I really want to rewatch the sequel now, just for fun. Everything you say, I didn't know, but it makes perfect sense when you listen to it. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see how that would lead to inspire this kind of thing.
2: Last thing to, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the production of the movie instead of the stories behind it. I'm
0: sure it was chaos.
2: (laughs) Yes, it (laughs) seems like it was chaos, but also I know that you are a big fan of practical effects.
0: Yeah, uh, not to sound like a Nolan. Not to sound like a Christopher Nolan, that's not, but (laughs) but yes, I do appreciate, especially nowadays, practical effects and. I love them in this movie. Continue.
2: Weirdly for me, and hey, tell me, tell me if you understand what I'm saying. But even though this movie was made in the mid '80s, it felt less dated to me than bad CGI. Yes, of course. Yeah, because at least I know that that kid is sitting on top of a dragon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I know that those. Glad that
0: you're there with me. I know that those sets are real. I know that those props are real.
2: Yeah. And
0: also, it's fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're trying to make I don't know a pigeon look real and I know like oh that's a pigeon I don't pigeons don't look like that it's like a monster made a rock
2: right they did an excellent job with like these there's puppets on no Valley yes
0: is th- that's the only thing I have so I, I love that approach I know I, that that's one of the best things about this movie yeah definitely
2: and then just to close us out I have a fun story featuring your well not your favorite guy one of your favorite guys. Peterson knew that he had a great German movie on his hands when they finally wrapped everything up, but Mm. he was worried how the film would play for a North American audience, because this is a co-production after all. So he got some help from the master, Steven Spielberg himself.
0: Man. (laughs) Spielberg was in such a run back then. Like he was such an omnipresent film. That there's so many stories of like, just ask Spielberg for advice.
2: And he's just like, sure, man, whatever you want. And
0: he's like, I'll just sprinkle some of my magic here. Yeah.
2: So Spielberg was a fan of Peterson's film Das Boot. <laughs> uh, it, I'm not sure what that means in English, but he helped Peterson by recommending a couple of things. So here's how you turn a German movie into an American movie. Take notes. One, he said, raise the volume on some of the creature noises. Okay, interesting. He also trimmed the movie down by seven minutes. And that's pretty significant when you have a... What was essentially a locked movie, because yeah. that version came out in Germany already. So they had a locked version. And uh, so that obviously changed the pace for the American version. And then to show his appreciation and say thank you, Peterson gifted him with the Aran. That's the amulet that Atreyu yeah. wears in the film.
0: Is that the coolest prop from it the film? It kind of I is. think, I think so. Is. Like if I... I don't know. Maybe that lady had Falcor in the basement. You saw that? The I story. saw that photo. Yeah. <laughs> I don't no, know, but...
2: <laughs> not going to lie. That ruined Falcor's majesticness a little bit for me.
0: You know, to me, it was sort of like post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. with the whole like, oh, my God, there's a face in the basement. It does oh, happen. Imagine if it if, was, imagine like, if oh was Gamork <laughs> instead. You would like... have
2: shit yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then just to close up the story. Peterson was able to return the favor, and he helped Spielberg with location scouting when he was in pre-production for Schindler's List. So it seems like they just are just a couple of director buds helping each other out.
0: I'm telling you, there's so many stories like that where Spielberg just comes in and be like, the Facebook drop, duh.
3: You know? Yeah, <laughs> that's what he exactly. does. <laughs> you know?
0: Exactly. He's just doing that for films all across town. It's yeah. just fucking legend.
2: All right. I know we could keep going on this, but we have very pressing matter at hand to discuss and that is the song for this movie from Lamal never-ending story
0: and our guest Tim grieving will join us back then we're gonna deep dive into perhaps what is most famous about
2: the movie it could be its lasting legacy it
0: could be yeah
2: all All right we're gonna take a quick break we'll be right back
0: Before we dive into the song, Tim, Sophie and I had a lengthy discussion about the movie, but we do want to get your two cents, especially like you said, you have such a strong connection. So, what is it about this film, Never Ending Story, that you just keep gravitating so much to it? Like even years after, like you said, it was something from your childhood, but you still love and you still have a strong connection to it.
1: Yeah, I'm, you know, and some people are like, yeah, it's because you saw it when you were eight, that's why you love it, but it's terrible. And and I know (laughs) that that logic works sometimes, but there are plenty of things I grew up loving that I look back now and I'm. Like, it doesn't hold up well. And this is not one of them. I think it's a great story. I mean, it's a great kind of fantasy premise of this fantasia, like this world within the imagination that you can sort of transport yourself to. The idea that this kid's reading a book that's changing and like meta aware of him reading the book. It's really trippy. I love practical effects and puppets, you know, that 80s kind of heyday of tactile, textural kind of effects. And you see this giant dragon puppet thing that this kid is actually sitting on and the amazing sets, the swamp of sadness, the ivory tower. I mean, some of it looks a little dated, I guess, but it looks dated in the most charming 80s, yes. retro, beautiful kind of way. I mean, we're so used to watching movies now that are fantasy that are just so plastic and fake and computer generated. And maybe they look more photorealistic, but you don't believe in them for a second. I don't anyway. Whereas I believe that these sets and these environments exist and I love spending time in them. I don't know. It's dark. It's creepy. It's funny. It's enchanting. It's sweet. It's all these flavors. It's German. <laughs> the weirdness of it being a German production with a German director and a German crew and German sets, but a little American kids and mostly like English speaking actors and it, them trying to do this kind of big Star Wars-y blockbuster type thing. That kind of weird hybrid of German and American is so magical to me. <laughs> in just 84, this time that it came out and was created in just, I don't know. I just love it. I don't think this movie traumatized me like some other things did. I always thought it was creepy and moody and sad, but it didn't have that kind of legacy for me. But... I love that about it because and I think it's maybe one of the factors that leads to such rewatch value for me as an adult is because it is kind of creepy and kind of sad for a kid's movie. It's it's like existential and dark, which is fitting with like Grimm's fairy tales or, you know, kind of classic German or, you know, European fairy tale fantasy literature. It should be kind of scary. It should be a little disturbing.
0: Well, then having said that, do you remember what are your three <laughs> moments as a kid? Was it Jelly and the uh, Chocolate? With factory really wonka sorry really wonka
1: the one that i always think about and it's not a kids movie but vertigo i saw that as Ooh. a kid at night late at night the last scene spoiler alert for this 1958 <laughs> film but the nun comes up the stairs of the bell area and she's just in shadows and it almost looks like she's like levitating upward and she's like i heard voices and then you know lady falls to her death i, I had nightmares about that <laughs> which is funny but i can't remember any others I, i'm sure there were some but return to oz return to oz was was traumatic oh my oh, god the floor is yours i just bought that on
2: blu-ray it's one of my favorite movies i was always a little bit more inclined toward the dark movies anyway maybe part of the electroshock therapy was lost on me in the beginning but i i genuinely love that movie i do too yeah. that's one of my
1: favorites and it's in the same lane as never ending story for me of this period of time with all these practical things and puppets and stuff. Oh, the music in both of them is so good, too. Yeah, yeah. Score to the score. Return
0: to Oz scores. Yeah. There. Well, I'm glad we got your two cents in, Tim. But Sophie, you got to get us started with the song deep dive. You're right. Us, I do. You got to take us for a ride with your song setup.
2: All right, here we go. Neverending Story is the title song from the film of the same name. It was composed by Giorgio Moroder with lyrics from Keith Forsey and performed by English pop synth artist Lamal. We talk about Giorgio Moroder a lot on the podcast, so you maybe know he's considered the father of disco. He was Donna Summer's producer for many of her hit songs like Love to Love You Baby and Last Dance. He's also a champion of movie songs. I'm talking Top Gun. I'm talking Flashdance. I'm talking American gigolo, and here's what those sound like.
0: I remember the other Giorgio or Moroder episode we did but he made our soundtrack man rushmore he currently sits on top of uh, on the uh, on it
2: yeah and I think he's gonna stay there yeah
0: in that podcast we talked about how call me was like the first like a movie song sample of like becoming a marketing vehicle for like Market the movie definitely
2: okay so let's talk a little bit about Lamal. Lamal is the stage name for English singer Christopher Hamill it's actually an anagram of his surname which for the longest time I was like what is this name <laughs> So, okay, finally, it makes sense. Uh, he was the lead singer of the band Goo starting in 1981. He met Nick Rhodes, who's the keyboardist for Duran Duran, and the two collaborated on a song that became Goo's debut single, Too Shy. shy,
3: shy. Hush, that is- hush, I do shy, shy. Hush,
2: hush. That is such an earworm. Oh I my know, God. That's okay. My brain
0: is at Clip on Bloop right now.
2: Honestly, honestly. Okay, so that song went to number one on the UK singles chart. It swept the top five in multiple European countries and it made top five on the US Billboard Hot 100. Their subsequent quits were Ooh To Be Ah and Hang On Now. They debuted their album, White Feathers, and went on tour. But soon after the tour, internal struggles came to a head. The rest of the bandmates voted to fire Lamal in (laughs) mid-1983, and the band's bassist, Nick Beggs, took over as lead singer. So the now former frontman, he felt pretty betrayed by this, but it seems like they all had different visions of the band's future. This also may have been a classic case of the fame changing everybody involved. So Lamal launched his solo career with Only For Love in 1983. Okay, now it's 1984. The German version of NeverEnding Story is out in theaters. Director Wolfgang Petersen wanted to add different music to the American version because he was worried that the movie was feeling a little too German. (laughs) So he recruited Giorgio Moroder to kind of beef up the already existing score that they had from Klaus Doldinger. Moroder had the idea to write the title song, which he had done to success with so many other movies. Lamal and Moroder were linked up by Lamal's manager, Billy Gaff, and he was selected to sing the song. Beth Anderson's accompanying vocals were added later on, though she is uncredited on the song. You may know Anderson, though, from her song Dance Dance Dance, which was featured in Scarface.
0: That's not the Scarface song I always go back to, the, like, uh, <laughs> Rush to the Yayo is the one mm. that, like, Rush,
2: Rush to <laughs> the... We almost didn't get this theme song, though. The president of EMI Records nearly sabotaged it. He did not like it, and he did not want to release it. But Lamal's manager went off on the guy, so hats off to Billy Gaff. He really made this thing happen. He also managed, uh, Rod Stewart, Cream, and The Clash, so this guy clearly knew what he was doing. And good thing Gaff fought for this song because it was a smash hit. It reached top five in many european countries and number six on the u.s billboard adult contemporary chart and just like the movie this song is a cult following and it continues to be loved by fans so let's talk about it
0: Woo! good job Sov. let's (laughs) go tim as tradition we gotta start with the guest so we know you picked the movie you talked about like your strong connection with the movie what about the song how do you feel about the song what's your connection about the song I've always loved the song. I bought the CD
1: soundtrack probably in junior high or something. It's one of my older purchases and I was into it the song as much as the score. I love the way it opens the movie, just loud and proud. I love the opening of the movie with the swirling mystical clouds and stuff and that song kind of fading slowly as Bastion wakes up like a dream, like the song was part of his dream. and I love the way it fades back in as the movie ends. Like in the movie, it's really a great way to start and finish the whole experience. Very 80s, but legitimately like production wise, melody wise, everything. I love it. I love Georgia Umaroder. I know no one can see this, but I got to uh, interview him. Oh. for
3: NPR. <laughs>
1: I did a story on him for NPR like eight years ago and went to his house and he showed me like some stuff that he had worked on. And I talked to him about inventing disco and everything. And I love him so much. I love his scores. Those other Lamal songs you played mm-hmm. were definitely missing the Marauder touch. Um, yeah, <laughs> because he just he had the Midas touch and you can hear similarities between his songs like his body of work. There's definitely like a through line, but each one has this own like magic to it, whether it's a, a unique sound or a really cool chord structure or whichever vocalist that he teamed up with. But he was on fire at this point. And I love his songs as much as I love his scores. And I love his scores. a That's lot. That's the crazy but...
0: thing about Georgia is like the father of disco. That in its own is enough to be like a Hall of Fame career. But no, the fact that he also, you can kind of call him the father of soundtrack. And the fact that he could argue those two positions, it's just like, what a behemoth of a career. I don't know how to call Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah he was the king of soundtrack for quite a while. So,
0: you said you love Return of the Ah. so I know that you have strong connections to like movies and stuff like that, but the music, you're always hard to pinpoint on your music <laughs> taste. Uh, That's fair. So... I want to hear what was what's your connection to the song? Like, is this something you had on repeat every once in a while or no?
2: Not so much. I feel like my main connection to this song was popping in the VHS and having it play through that beginning. I will also cop to fast forwarding through it <laughs> occasionally. But when I was a kid and now I know better, now I'm wiser. I really dig this song. And, you know, I know that we're definitely going to discuss this later, but Stranger Things really brought this back to the forefront a couple years ago. I think all of us who were so wise to it then were having our moment with this song again. So that really brought it back for me.
0: I mean, so let's let's go there. Tim, how did it feel seeing a song you have such a strong connection Mm -hmm. that you might have also being around the age of the characters in Stranger Things with that scene and then this super popular TV show uses this song and it goes, it's a cultural moment. Let's get some content, like how big this thing came with Stranger Things.
3: Turn around. with me. Look at what you see. That's
0: the actor on Jimmy Fallon singing. Hey man. that was Do you enough. want to do that thing? Colbert? Right now. Jimmy Fallon?
3: Yeah. Let's do it. Make believe
0: Another Stranger Things star, Millie Bobby Brown, is getting in on the fun too, using the hashtag NeverEndingChallenge and showing off her dance moves. That was at at a screening. The crowd, after the screening, the crowd is singing. tim how does it feel like you know
1: it's funny i feel like a possessiveness about these things so when i see people like jumping on the bandwagon so late like they just discovered it it's a mixed feeling i'm like good for you all but you know come on i've been here since 1984 <laughs> like you acting like you just discovered this uh hidden treasure when it's been right out in front of you all along but no i'm glad i <laughs> i can't i can't feel anything other than Gladness that uh, so many people were exposed to the song and hopefully the movie and enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, and a new generation as well who maybe didn't grow up seeing the movie.
0: True. Did you hear the actual, I think in the album, there was a Stranger Things version of the song? I heard it within the context of the show. I don't
1: know if I listened to the album.
0: Here's a little bit. It's like the karaoke version yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say i was like man i was surprised like i don't know definitely not my favorite version let's just leave it <laughs> at that yeah the stranger thing connection was really big so answering i guess my question of what's my connection to this this is an interesting scenario because i feel like this might be a new category the song will go on this song because this song to me looking back at it operates kind of similar as a TV theme. It doesn't feel like a song that you would listen outside of its relationship to the movie. But even then, like you can say that for like, Call Me Blondie by Kong. You know, like it just doesn't feel like that kind of song. It feels a song that really lives in the space of the movie. Like Tim was mentioning, they play it at the beginning, play it at the end. It really does feel sort of like a main title TV theme, like those DuckTales, Darwin Duck. I grew up with some really great TV themes when I was a kid. That's kind of how it feels like to me. Having said that, I also am a soccer for synthetizer. Sophie, as you call it, beep boop music. Yes. Fair so I do listen to this on my own. Yeah, I think this is a new category in the song we Will Go On, which is just like, it's, it's like a theme, you know, like a TV theme almost.
1: I think that's fair. I mean, the name of this song is the name of the movie. And he's sort of like explaining or narrating what the what the movie's about a little bit. The content of the song is very much tied to the movie itself. This is not a, not supposed to be a name drop, but I was talking to Weird Al yesterday about the song for his, <laughs> because he got an Emmy nomination for the original song for his, you know, fake biopic with Daniel Radcliffe. And I was t- saying like the song, if, if you've heard the song or you've seen the movie, the lyrics are commenting on the movie and like he's even commenting on the credits that are rolling up the (laughs) screen. So I said, your your song wouldn't make any sense at all without the movie. And I, I was saying like, I think for eligibility for Emmys and Oscars, I almost feel like the song should be sort of unremovable from the movie, like Mm. it doesn't make any sense without the movie, which I don't I wouldn't fight for that. But there are two different camps. There's the song that kind of has nothing to do with the movie. But it you know, the movie was sort of a, a platform to have this big pop song or maybe Oscar eligibility. But beyond that, it has nothing to do with the movie. And then there are songs like this that like, it makes sense without the movie, but it really kind of needs the movie to give it any kind of context. But I will argue just as a song production wise, vibe wise, Melody-wise, chord progression wise I think it's something I do listen to just for fun, just Mm -hmm. like I do with most of uh, Marauder's songs.
0: So do you want to talk about your guy, Forsey?
2: Sure, yeah. Okay, so (laughs) when we were setting up our schedule for what we were going to cover in Season 2, we left a lot of it up to our guests, and we didn't realize that we are covering two Keith Forsey songs. So this was actually my introduction to the mastermind that is Keith Forsey. And I'm so glad that we get to highlight him a little bit. So he's the lyricist on this song, but we are also covering him in our Don't You Forget About Me episode. But I just wanted to give him some time because he is such a cool guy. So Keith Forsey, he began his career as a percussionist playing in krautrock rock acts such as Udo Lindbergh's Panic Orchestra and Amon Duel.
0: What a name. Amon on dual. Yeah.
2: And anyone unfamiliar with this type of music, krautrock is a British term for an experimental West German rock movement in like the late 60s, early 70s. But Germans were more likely to use the term, and please forgive my pronunciation, kosmische musik which is uh, the name of a record compilation in 1972 that featured the likes of Tangerine Dream. So the movement went on to inspire the likes of Julian Cope from The Teardrop Explodes and David Bowie during his Berlin trilogy. So this definitely has cemented its place in rock history. But keeping all that in mind is really cool in contrast with the next moves in Forzy's career because he becomes a pioneer of disco as well. I don't know. I I find that interesting because famously rockers kind of hated disco at the is, time, like, yeah. misguidedly in my opinion. I think there's room for everybody. I just found that really interesting that he goes from this rock and into the disco movement. And he played for the likes of a personal favorite of mine, Boney M. Hell yeah. <laughs>
0: I think I told you this, Sophie, but Tim, uh, you, you might also know this. Uh, you know um, Shaun of the Dead, the famous needle drop with Queen, Don't Stop Me Now? I heard an interview where Boney M, I think it was Daddy Cool or you know, or Rasputin, mm-hmm. was like the backup. If they couldn't get the rights to that song, they would have used uh, Boney M in <laughs> that scene.
2: That's funny. Uh, they use it in... It's either Paddington 1 or Paddington 2, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite needle drops. The true cinema of our time. <laughs>
2: oh, seriously. I am such a a, a Paddington 2 head. Everyone so is. Mean, There's no such thing yeah. as not
0: being that. It's like <laughs> The Dark Knight and then Paddington 2, like the best sequels <laughs> of all time.
2: You're right. You're right. Okay, quickly back to 4Z. Um, So, yeah, he became Giorgio Moroder's drummer, like we said. The father of disco himself, Moroder, famously produced on A Summer, as we said before. And Z played on The Bad Girl. Album and co-wrote her granny winning song Hot Stuff. Yeah, seriously. And then uh, he continues to work with Marauder. He co-wrote Flashdance, What a Feeling, and that earned him an Oscar, Grammy, and a Golden Globe. So he's one away from an EGOT.
0: And residual checks for the rest of
2: it. Uh, yeah, seriously. If we develop a song we'll go on drinking game, I feel like yes. Donna Summer has to be on there. And Fla- Flashdance. Flash dance for sure.
0: It's like like <laughs> a big bang in, in soundtracks. Everything... It's related to flash dance, apparently in the eighties. Apparently. So one one yeah. way or another.
2: Yeah, so he's brought into the world of soundtracks. After this, he goes on to co-write Don't You Forget About Me for The Breakfast Club. <laughs> no. And then he's sort of back in the rock space. So I just found his career super interesting and I didn't even know who he was and that's why I love <laughs> like doing this podcast is that we get to learn how all of these songs are connected under the surface.
0: So many like unsung heroes in music, studio musicians, That that's one of the things we love from The Song Will Go On, like doing the research We just like these legends of music that just have collaborated with so many artists and you just don't know about it. Like mm-hmm. a Keith Forsey and there's so many. Tim, I want to go back to you and I'm excited that you Say that you love Giorgio Mortar, because I do too. And especially like his work on soundtrack. I wanted to throw something your way and get your thoughts. As you probably know, I mean, you're a film music evangelist. His like influence over the 80s, not just in soundtrack, but in, in scores, I feel like, is huge. And I came up with one, and let me know if I'm stretching here, Tim. Here is a little bit of Giorgio Mortar's score for the never-ending story. Well, two years later, we got hit he- this. I don't know. I just could see, you could clearly see the influence there. Yeah,
1: and it's it's very direct, too, because the composer, Harold Fultemar, who did Top Gun, was a protege of, of Marauders, and they worked in the same little factory. So they were using the same gear. I think Fultemar probably wrote and recorded the score for Top Gun at the same, you know, with the same mm. tools that that Moroder used for a lot of the songs. So there's definitely some, some bleed over there. Both bangers though. Both
0: bangers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no complaints here. I mean,
0: Here's the crazy thing, the score for, the part of the score that I played for Neverending Story is the swamp of sadness, like that really sad scene. And then kind of the same thing for the summer anthem of all <laughs> time, Top Gun. It's like, how can the same thing apply for so different vibes?
1: You gotta lay that screaming electric guitar over it. That's the answer.
0: All right, let's move on to answerable questions. Let's go, seven seconds in heaven. What seven seconds from the song gives you goosebumps? Tim, we'll start with you. Honestly, this is a dumb answer,
1: but I feel like the intro is just hard to beat. I love the vocals and I love some of the modulations, but that opening beat is just sick, you know?
0: Hey, you're preaching to the choir. Openings are almost all the time my favorite seconds. So what do you got from this one?
2: Mine is right in the beginning as well. It's right when Lamal starts singing and you get that modulation, that riff that he does that obviously proceeds through the rest of the song. But like the first time you hear it, <laughs> it's good. It's really exciting. Turn
3: Look at what
2: you see. So obviously we go on to hear that many more times, but the first time is my favorite. <laughs> I'm I'm with
0: Tim. I didn't win the intro just because the intro, the song begins kind of like a little bit fading in, but then right after the chorus, we get, I think the intro, but just like now fully established. And it's just that beat, man. Hell yeah. Which, by the way, have you guys heard the Dan's version on the 12 LP version? I'm sure I sought that out at some point, but I don't actually don't remember. Don't worry, Tim. I got you. I got you. <laughs> so that's them version. They took away the swoosh. So so here's, that's the original one. So that's the comparison. I mean, I could dance to both, honestly. Yeah, y- yeah you yeah. know
2: what? Team swoosh.
0: Yeah. Just in one dance I just do the wings like You could dance to both, but you can only fly with the original. Hell
2: yeah my god.
0: That's it, mic drop. Favorite lyric? Each host sheds slides on their favorite lyric. Kim, do you have favorite lyrics for this song? Uh, <laughs> <like> <laughs> that's
2: s- fair.
1: <laughs> I, I, surely I've memorized it. I'm just cycling through. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have one, honestly.
0: No worries. I mean, that's the thing. This question sheds light more than many ways because sometimes it's melody. Sometimes it's rhythm. Sometimes it's lyrics. I don't listen to this for the lyrics. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I actually had to look up the lyrics to try to find a passage because the song's more about vibes. And yeah. even mm-hmm. when you go to the lyrics, you're like, oh, this isn't really about anything. So I just picked Make Believe I'm Everywhere, hidden in the lines written on the pages is the answer to the never-ending story. I don't know what any of that means. No, but I don't know. <laughs>
0: As with 98% of the lyrics I listen to, but those are actually my pick too. Okay. I guess for the moment the part that it just fits with the movie.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's
0: it's good movie song writing.
2: Yeah, when you hear that, you're getting images of the movie, it it corresponds to the plot. Totally. All right.
0: Hall of Fame moment. Who or what had their best moment in pop culture with this movie and or song? It could be anything. A person, a studio, a film, music genre. Hey, in this case, it could be a country. Is it German music? I don't know. (laughs) Hall of Fame moment. Tim, do you have any Hall of Fame moments? For the song?
2: For any of it. I was gonna
0: say, is this
1: Wolfgang Peterson's best film? Probably. <laughs> it's, yes. probably. It's certainly the highlight for all three of the kids. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I was looking up what all the kids are up to. And the kid who plays Bastion is like an expert on photography. And mm-hmm. there's a video of him on the Huntington Gardens website where he's showing the photography techniques that they use during the Civil War. And he has this crazy beard. And I love it. It. Yep. So I'm like, cool, like, great. You found a passion other than acting, and it's very specific, but I dig it.
1: Well, I just want to just mention that I'm friendly with the childlike empress now. Really? We we correspond by email about stuff, so.
2: Wow, you're like living your childhood dream. You have no idea. (laughs) So I have a very specific Hall of Fame moment. I was going to save this for our WTF moment, but I think I needed to, to talk about it here because it's so iconic. So in the very beginning of the movie, like I'm talking two minutes in, Bastion wakes up from that dream that he had, and then he goes to breakfast and he's telling his dad that he had a dream about his mom who recently passed away. And while his father is criticizing him (laughs) for being upset about his mom's death, he's making the most baffling (laughs) breakfast I've ever seen in my life. He is blending orange juice with a raw egg. And that, I think, is probably the most disgusting thing I could imagine. So I googled it, and apparently it was a thing. But yeah, so it was, like, at Orange Julius they made this until they couldn't serve people raw eggs anymore, and then they used egg white powder. Um, But anyway, Hall of Fame moment for worst breakfast ever in a movie. Is
0: it Hall of Fame moment for weird hair? Lamal's hairdo? In the 80s?
2: I think a lot of people in the 80s would give you a run for your money on that category i, I
1: think his is uniquely bad it is
2: yeah <laughs> then the
0: other one i have is honestly think about it hall of fame moment for a villain like shit the nothing It's the nothing like the biggest villain of all time it's just literally existential dread nothing like non-existent like there's
2: i mean look I'm still voting for Weird Breakfast Dad as the true villain of this movie. <laughs> but yeah, like I discussed in our movie setup, this movie, or the the book, rather, that this movie is based on is definitely a reaction to World War II. So the nothing is totally part of that.
0: All right. Uh, remix. With today's current artist or band, who would you choose to perform this song if the movie came out today? Tim. I know this Ooh. is probably the toughest one of all.
1: I mean, sort of the obvious choice would be something like The Weeknd, which actually... I kind of like that idea. I'm just going to go with my first hunch. He's got he's got a great voice mm-hmm. and he loves that kind of retro 80s synth vibe. So He also likes
0: movies.
2: Yeah, like he, movie he has buff. like a
0: cinematography kind of aspect to his. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So
2: I've given this answer on another (laughs) episode and I think it's just because I am having a moment with her hit song, Yes I Am, Padum Padum. I would pick Kylie Minogue. (laughs) Did you see that (laughs) on the documentary? Did you steal it? No. Okay, here's another one. Uh, What I liked about the Stranger Things version was that they kind of sped up the tempo a little bit and I think it made it a little bit more listenable or a little bit more dancey at least. So, I know you played that dance one before, but I wanted more. So, I looked up Neverending Story Club remix and I found one. Uh, well, it's from a DJ ACDC, which is very confusing.
0: Um, <laughs> I had Kylie Minogue. I felt like. All right. Hey, this is a dance track at its heart. Let's keep up in her hands. We'll keep dancing. Yeah. But also the European connection, the European queen.
2: She is the queen of Eurodance, it's true.
0: Kylie, I think, would do great. All right, WTF, a moment from the movie or the song. You thought I might needed a second opinion. Tim, anything from the movie or song that kind of makes you go like, "What?"
1: Well, I, I don't want to steal the breakfast thing. That always <laughs> really throw me off. It's it's insane and it's disgusting and it's and they it, just treat it like it's normal. But I will tell you a WTF thing that is a segue into a conversation I could have for an hour. So there is a German cut of this film and there is an American cut of this <laughs> film. You better believe I have both. Amazing. And this is how big a nerd I am, but there's this whole Pandora's box that we could open because the German version does not have the never ending story song. It does not have Georgia Maroder score. It's all Klaus Doldinger and it's all amazing. The way that the German version opens is so bare and so kind of creepy and slow and, mystical and i love it it's it's so it's such a different way to open the movie so that's a whole side discussion but the wtf thing is deep roy the the short guy who's in a lot of tim burton movies mm-hmm. plays i can't remember it's not nighthawk it's uh whoever yes rides yes snail yeah the snail yes the, yeah the, the big hat so he is dubbed in both versions it's not deep roy's voice he's mm-hmm. dubbed by two different american actors in in each version huh and in the German cut this is so crazy he's voiced by someone doing like a very southern accent like, a, <laughs> like a, a twangy southern accent and it makes no sense whatsoever with his character and nobody else is dubbed by a different person but Deep Roy is so that's truly WTF but I, I highly encourage people to seek out the German I cut mean, of what a way to German pitch person. the German
0: cut like I'm, I'm in it's amazing
2: for the fans of physical media at home I think it's only out in 4k blu-ray in the German version so uh, WTF, Annie? Yeah, it was the ending of this movie. I didn't remember that Bastion comes into the real world with Falcor to, like, <laughs> fuck up his bullies. In, in New York. Yeah, so, and it, it is City. so, like, I feel like maybe this was a German ending. I don't know. But but in American movies, usually it's like you rise above the bullies and you decide, you like stand up for yourself or whatever. And he's like, no, fuck you guys. Like, that's the lesson I learned. It's
0: <laughs> a good lesson. My WTF is the sequel song.
2: Yeah. What okay.
0: happened? What happened? We Georgia. had-
2: Giorgio. What we happened? We had Giorgio again
0: and we got this. Oh. tim i see you shaking your head yeah. i have to go to you
1: the beginning of the end for Giorgio's dominance i guess with that song yeah. that's awful <laughs>
0: uh, i i do actually like the sequel uh, i mentioned it on a movie discussion uh i liked it but just the song it's like come on all right we, we we gotta go still three quick questions uh tim is this a car song no one can define it but everyone knows when they hear it is this a song to listen to in the car? Absolutely. 100%. No question. Oops. So?
2: My gut says no. I think I need more pump up music in the car.
0: This doesn't pump you up it like does. to fly? Like, I can't. I keep.
2: Falcor. Falcor. Falcor.
0: Your car is Falcor. <laughs> yeah. This is a traveling song.
2: Okay, yeah. You all right. You've convinced me. And then you extend <laughs>
0: your arms through, uh, open the window, extend your arms, and you go, ah and then run over your bullies
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and, and crank <laughs> up the bass yeah.
0: <laughs> our patrons submitted a question favorite 80s movie song Ooh. this is submitted to us by patreon tim what's your favorite 80s movie song if it's not this one it sounds like but no
1: i there's so many and and this would be way up there wow that is really tough but you know what i'm gonna maybe just kind of go with my gut and say take my breath away my favorite mm. like, 80s song also Giorgio.
2: Giorgio. our guy
0: Can't believe they left it on the sequel, but that's another podcast. Sophie.
2: Yeah, this is really tough. I mean, the other Keith Forsey hit, Don't You Forget About Me, is absolutely up there. But if I'm going with what my heart says, it's going to be another weird 80s fantasy movie. It's going to be Magic Dance by David Bowie from Labyrinth.
0: Yeah, Good choice. We're both Bowie fans. Tim, that's a recurring bit. How do you sneak in David Bowie?
1: Sophie
2: found two ways (laughs) in
0: this podcast. So
2: for the drinking game.
1: Yes, Bowie teamed up with Marauder. So yes, it it all connects.
0: We're science. We covered it on the pod. Uh, We're science is one of my favorite songs. Uh, After doing the pod and listening to it 15 times, I still listen to it almost on a weekly basis. I don't care. I love it. We're science. It's a good one.
2: Yeah. Oh, also, um, while we're plugging, (laughs) um, we did an episode (laughs) on cat people. If you want to hear that David Bowie and Marauder episode. Last
0: question. Will the song go on? Will this song live and continue to be part of pop culture, Tim?
1: To borrow the title of the song, this song is never ending. It will go on forever.
0: We got a writer among, well, two (laughs) writers, but yes.
2: If you had asked me a few years ago i might have said no but stranger things managed to bring it out and introduce it to a new generation i mean i you i really have to say yes the song will go on
0: i think so yeah. i think we'll get the disney plus neverending story series soon
2: Oh and, no, I want. Sorry, I was about to say HBO, but the Max version. <laughs> oh,
0: the Max original. Yeah, yeah, series. yeah. No, I want. We're gonna I, get. I want to see
2: the weird stuff.
0: Some origin story, and the first question is like, who's gonna do the song? For sure, the song yes. will go on. Yes. Yes. Tim, we want to thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's been a blast. Silly question, I guess, but where can people follow your work in all the multiple
1: <laughs> places? Well, I yeah, I'm a freelancer, so I'm not. I don't have one home, but I do put everything I I produce on timgrieving.com, which is spelled G-R-E-I. B-I-N-G, not like the way it's supposed to be spelled. (laughs) It is a German name, so uh, it fits with uh, the story today. But (laughs) yeah, all my radio stuff, all my print stuff, all my web stuff goes on timgrieving.com. And I'm half active on social media, so don't bother with that.
0: (laughs) People listening, if you can tell Tim gets amazing interviews and they're great, you should definitely check them out. We follow his work for quite a while and man... It's surreal to have you here in the pod. We're so thankful, bud. We got to get you back. The other, we talked about the other one you picked. I'm just going to give it a heads up. It was Somewhere in My Memory, John Williams, which makes perfect sense. That's what I thought you would have picked, like something along those lines. I will have a lot to say about that, so I look forward to it.
2: I'm still casting my vote for the Beethoven 2 song, so (laughs) just putting that out out there. That'd be fun. All right, thanks so much for joining us, Tim. We really appreciate it.
0: The song Will Go On is written, researched, and produced by Safi Matano and Paolo Grassini. Theme music is composed by William Russell. Consulting producers are J.P. Lee and Jonathan Fisher. Recording, editing, and mixing by Safi Matano and Paolo Grassini. The song Will Go On is a Gigawatts podcast. You can find Gigawatts on YouTube and on Instagram at gigawatts underscore YouTube.